Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Isaiah chapter 26. This 26th chapter is similar to the one we were in last week, which was chapter 25, because it too is a prophetic word uh, looking into the distant future, that kingdom age, that time when Christ returns to set up and establish his, his kingdom here on planet earth. It is a song to be sung in that day, the day the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, establishes his eternal kingdom. And so once again, in this chapter, hope and peace take center stage, okay? Hope and peace take center stage, even though it has to do with judgment, the judgment of God coming upon those who had exalted themselves above God, upon those who have rejected him and defied him, so on and so forth. And so keep in mind, however, during this time that when Isaiah is writing this prophetic word, that the people of Isaiah's day, people in Judah, were facing the constant threat under the attack by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the ones who had taken captive the northern kingdom. That's already taken place, or in, it did in uh, 732 B.C., something like that. I, it number just slipped me. Uh, but the Assyrians are still like the world power, and they're, they're, they're giving Judah, the southern kingdom, a hard time. Eventually... It would not be the Assyrians who would take Judah captive. It would be the Babylonians who beat up on the Assyrians, and they became the world power, but that's who it would be. But still, they're, they're under this constant attack by the Assyrians. And so because of that, it was a time of extreme distress, as you might could imagine, and uncertainty. Nevertheless, the Lord is longing to let them know that, and, and to assure his people that he loves them and that he cares for them. Even though there will be consequences for sin and even though there will be judgment, and not because he's a mean God or a you know, God who's in a bad mood and wanting just to punish somebody for no purpose at all. It's because of their sin that they brought this on themselves. But he wants them to know, in spite of all that, he truly does care for us. He truly does love us. Okay, And so we want to remember that, that he longs to assure his people of that very thing, that he cares for them. There's only one condition, really, that laid out before them with regards to God loving them and caring them. And it, whether they did or not, did not change his love for them. But he's just asking that they, that they would repent of their sins, <laughs> that they would be a, a people of repentance and then return to him. Because they'd kind of forgotten about him. They just, he just wanted them to return to him because that is, would be the best thing for them. Amen? As it is for us. God always acts for the benefit of his people. Folks, no matter how dark it gets around us and no matter how dim the future might appear to be from an earthly perspective, all is not lost. Not even close. For those who are in Christ Jesus, because of his great love, the Lord is moving human history toward one big, epic, final day. Yeah. 
the day when our Lord and Savior will establish his perfect kingdom here on planet earth. How many of you are looking forward to that? Amen. And so this chapter, which as I've already said, is one who, that is a song. It actually spells out some very specific things that God does on behalf of his people, on, on, on our behalf. So we're going to see that here. And, and first off, what we want to notice is that God replaces oppression with his peace. How many enjoy peace? We all like peace, don't we? God replaces oppression with his peace. Look at the first couple of verses with me of chapter 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. Now, just once again, a reminder, in Old Testament prophecy, you have to know this. Typically, it's dealing in two time zones, okay? And if you don't know that, you get lost in, in, in Old Testament prophecy. In other words, it will be dealing with a present time and when the prophecy is being written. But it also, as I said, is pointing to a distant future. So it speaks to both places, to both times, okay? Does that make sense? And so, as we've already said, judgment did come upon Judah, as it did the northern, Israel, northern tribe. But it also is going to come once again upon the whole earth. Yes. And so this is dealing with all of that, okay? And so we find it says that in that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Here it is pointing to that distant time, that distant future, that kingdom age, yes. when Jesus does establish his kingdom. This opening verse is actually a direct response to the closing verses of chapter 25. Here the word salvation means God's deliverance. It means his protection from all the evil and all of the oppressive people of the world. And so when the Lord's kingdom is set up on earth... The strong city that we read about here, which is really a reference to the new Jerusalem, will no longer be a city fought over and oppressed by the nations of the world as it was in Isaiah's day and as it continues to be even in our day. Instead, it will become the capital of Christ. And here's two words I'm going to use it together that you've never ever heard used together. In the whole history of mankind. You ready? When he cap it becomes the capital of Christ, this new Jerusalem, in the kingdom age where he sets up his, here it is, his perfect government. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? When I, when I put those two together, who has ever heard of such a thing? In fact, it is so bizarre we can't even hardly begin to imagine what that might look like, <laughs> right? A perfect government. When has that ever existed on the earth? It is going to. Amen. My dear Amen. brothers and sisters, it yes. is going to. And because Christ will become the ruler of it, he will be the king of that, that government, a perfect government. Jerusalem will be known as the city of salvation, the city from which the Savior rules over the whole earth. 
in that day, security will no longer be an issue. Did you read where it said, and the gates are going to be left wide open? Why? So that the righteous can come and enter in and worship their king. Jerusalem will no longer be known as a city of division and conflict, but as the city of God, the city of salvation. And church, I want you to notice that it is this salvation that we talk about here that that Isaiah is writing about that makes the city strong. He says we have a strong city, not because they built extra strong walls or anything like that. It's strictly because of the salvation of the Lord that makes it what it is, a strong city, the city of God. Now, we're going to skip over verse 3 for now, but we're going to come back to it. Let's, let's go to verse 4, okay? It says, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord himself is the rock eternal. I love those, that kind of language, don't you, from Scripture? He is the rock eternal. One of the great works of God on behalf of his people is to provide a solid foundation for our lives. As the rock of life, the Lord provides stability. He provides security. He provides support. He provides defense against all the stormy trials and temptations of life. In the Lord is everlasting strength. The NIV translates it the rock eternal. In the original Hebrew, guess what it is? The rock of ages. Heard that term before? <laughs> he is the rock of ages, which is a whole lot better than what Prudential Insurance offers, right? <laughs> what do they talk about? A piece of the rock. Jesus promises peace from the rock. The rock of ages, which is Christ, our Lord and Savior. Jesus promises that kind of peace. As we walk through life, we either decide to build our lives upon sinking sand or upon this solid rock that we've just talked about. If you choose sinking sand, you are actually then at that point choosing against God. And the next couple of verses show us what you get when you choose against God's way and prefer your way, which being referred to as, here as, as building upon sand. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down. The feet of the oppressed. The footsteps of the poor. God will humble the proud and bring down the arrogant to the dust. Now, just to make sure you don't miss this, you might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not some ruler, I'm not some king, I'm not some monarch, so it's not talking about me. This is referring to anyone who has exalted themselves in one way, shape, or form above God. If you have gone against him, if you are building your life on sinking sand, if you have thought your way was better, you think you're wiser, you go against his word, you defy him in that way, you've exalted yourself above God, guess what? This is talking to you. It's serious stuff. 
all people, cities and nations that exalt themselves above God, thinking that they've, they can handle it. They've got this. All those who exalt themselves above God, especially at the expense of others, will face the judgment of God. Far too often the prideful mock and persecute the righteous, rob and cheat people, deny and defy the one true God. But the day is coming, Isaiah tells us, when God will level the arrogant cities of this world and humble their proud rulers as well as their citizens. God's judgment will bring a great reversal of position. Did you notice who is doing the trampling here? It's God's doing, but are you, did you notice who he uses? The ones who were oppressed by the, the arrogant? Those who were put into a poor and needy place because of the proud and arrogant? They are the ones, it's said right here in verse 6, who do the trampling. God has reversed this whole thing and uses those who have been oppressed to stomp on those who did the oppressing. Our God is a God of justice, isn't he? Next, I want you to see that God replaces wickedness with righteousness. Verses 7 in the first part of verse 9, the path of the righteous is level. You, the upright one, make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. I want you to know how Isaiah addresses the Lord. He refers to him here. He calls him the upright one. Because the Lord is upright, meaning righteous and just, he will act in behalf of his righteous people. He will make sure that nothing prevents the righteous from traveling the road that he has appointed them to travel which I think is such a blessing, isn't it? Isaiah says that God will level the path and smooth the way for the righteous. Have you ever been on a, just a really bad dirt road? How many of you appreciate washboard? I don't. <laughs> You're just going like this, right? And you, I feel like after a couple of miles of that, I need to get out and make sure all the bolts haven't fallen off, you know? But God says, no washboard. <laughs> The road will be smooth. Now, we were, we're liking it to an actual road, but we know that on the road of life, we can hit snags. There are bumps and all kinds of distractions and, and things thrown in the way, isn't there? We deal with that. But aren't you glad that he says to us, there will be a day, there's coming a time, I'm going to remove all that. It's going to be a smooth highway that you can travel on and journey in faith for me and unto me. I think that is so awesome. And what a promise. You see, once again, this whole thing is so much about hope and peace and gives us something to truly, truly look, look forward to. But because we know that we have this in our future, it should bring to us peace for the moment. Amen? Peace for today. 
But we we live in this moment with our eyes on the future, making the difference in how we live for him and display him in this life. But we got to ask ourselves, then, who are the righteous being referred to here? Who are they? Well, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for who? For us. So that in him we might become the what? Righteousness of God. This means that God declares the believer righteous. Don't get too excited about that, okay? Uh, Keep, don't, get, don't get too wild on me. You have been declared righteous. No matter what you might think of yourself, no matter how many times the enemy comes and wants to tap on your shoulder, bring up some old past thing, and try to remind you how bad you are and how wicked you are, how, how undeserving and how unworthy you are, how weak you are, you just remind him what Jesus says about you. Hey, and you know what else? I think if we could begin to really understand and embrace this truth, can you imagine the difference that it would make in our relationships with one another? And how we treat one another? How we think about one another? Christ has declared that person, no matter what I'm thinking right now about them, whatever I don't like about them, righteous, and vice versa. Christ declares, he proclaims us because of our faith and our belonging to him, righteous. That's who's being talked about. Righteous people, therefore, then are those who obey God's word, And according to Isaiah, what he tells us here, eagerly wait on and for him. Our eagerly waiting, folks, please don't miss this, gets lived out and is displayed in how we are choosing him over ourselves. Amen? Amen. It's it's saying to the world, I belong to Jesus. And as I wait on him, I am living for him, displaying him, because I want the world to know what's coming. (laughs) And that he is a good God, and he loves us and cares for us. The righteous are those who yearn for the Lord, Isaiah says, morning and night. What are you yearning for? What has your longing been for, your desires? God will act in behalf of such people, leveling the path and smoothing the way that they travel throughout life. Let's pick up with the rest of verse 9. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Problem is, not everybody does. Look at the next verse. But when grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. 
that the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. As we've seen, God does and will execute his judgments on earth. The Lord has a very specific purpose for his judgments. And once again, like I said a little bit ago, it's not because he's a mean God. It's not because he's in a bad mood. It's not because he hasn't had his coffee. No, not at all. There is purpose. And, and you've heard me say before, everything God does is acting on behalf of his people. Let me add to that. Everything God does has redeeming value. Amen? Always. And so his judgments, even though it involves the wrath of God coming down on people who have rejected him and defied him and exalted themselves above him, it is to teach people to live righteously. That's the purpose for it. He will allow things to happen. He will let people hit rock bottom if that's what it takes to get them to look up and to turn to him and live for him. Finally. To teach people to live righteously, not for themselves, for Him. When disaster strikes, you know what people tend to do. They tend to turn to the Lord, right? Seeking His strength, looking for His deliverance, calling out, help me, help me, help me, and then the help comes. And then what do they do? Remember 9-11? A few weeks after that, churches were filled. Where are they now? Where were they just a month later after 9-11? The Lord hears when the wicked cry for help. And though he often meets their need, they still refuse to learn his righteous ways. Even when they live in a so-called land of righteousness, they continue to live sinful lives, no matter how much kindness the Lord may show them, how much mercy, how much grace, or how much love, or how many blessings He's bestowed upon them. They still reject Him, choosing their way over and above His. And although the Lord warns them of coming judgment, they refuse to see the disaster that lies just over the horizon. But a day of rude awakening will come. And in that day of coming judgment, all the wicked will see God's zeal and saving his people. Being in their covering and their protection. And putting the wicked to shame. One commentator writes this. He says, even though God's grace is extended to the wicked... They will continue in selfish, sinful living. I think God is very much justified in pouring out wrath in the tribulation period, that seven-year period. For thousands of years, God has been so gracious to humanity, blessing those who curse His name, providing for those who deny His existence, loving people who couldn't care less about Him. It's inconceivable that a loving God would pour out His wrath on mankind, some people would say. It seems so out of character for a loving God. The writer continues and says, I'm amazed by it too. I'm surprised it's restricted to only seven years. <laughs> If I were God, he says, 
it would be reversed. We would have 6,000 years of tribulation and seven years of grace. The wicked of the earth just don't seem to get it spiritually. They are dull of hearing, no understanding of God's word. They are ignorant of the one true God. Listen to what God says about that in verse 12 and 13. So, Lord, you established peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor. What's that saying to us? It's saying that God replaces pride with humility, and we'll see even more of that in the next few verses. In Isaiah's day, the rulers of Assyria, as I said earlier, were threatening Judah. But Isaiah knew that God had always strengthened the true believers during times of oppression. So the faithful few, a remnant, if you will, among his people, had continued to live for God, to honor him and his name. Just read on, verse 14 and 15, uh, just verse 14, they, they are now dead. These who used to rule over them, they are now dead. They live no more. Their spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. Again, pride being replaced with humility. Isaiah says the oppressors are dead. And their spirits would never, ever again rise. This is an amazing prophetic word, actually. For Isaiah was contrasting the enemies of God with genuine believers who place their trust in God. In stating that the spirits of God's enemies would not rise again, he is implying <laughs> that the spirits of those who belong to God, who trust in God's spirit, will rise. What's he speaking of? What's that referring to? The resurrection of Christ, right? Our resurrection with him as well. When the Lord brings judgment on his enemies, he will wipe out all memory of them, Isaiah says. By memory, Isaiah is referring to their honor. So, for example, we all know about Pharaoh who was ruling Egypt during the time of Moses, right? We all know about that. But who, do you know anybody who honors Pharaoh today? I don't know of one. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? But, hallelujah, there are many who still continue to lift up and honor and give praise and glory to the name of the name that is above all names. The name that every knee is going to bow to. The name of Jesus Christ. the one true living God. Let's read on in verse 16 through 18. It says, Lord, they came to you in their distress when you disciplined them. They could barely whisper a prayer. As a pregnant woman about to give birth wreaths and cries out in her pain, so were, so were we in your presence, Lord. We were with child. We wreathed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, and the people of the world 
have not come to life. God had a very specific purpose for disciplining the people to cause them to cry out to him, to seek him, to return to him. Because of his love for them, he longed for them to turn from their sins, come back to him as a woman giving birth cries out in pain. We find so the Israelites, so the people of Judah, suffering the discipline of God, cried out in pain. We could say very, very truthfully that at this point, the Jewish people, rather be the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, Israel or Judah, had become a prodigal nation. Would you agree with that? I think you would also agree that we today in America have become a prodigal nation because we left God as well. We've kicked them out of schools. We've kicked them out of just about everything there is to kick God out of. We're familiar with that parable that Jesus told, aren't we? The parable of the prodigal. And there, there's always debate and conversation that goes on about what that parable is about and who it really is about. Is it about the younger son who went off to a foreign country and wasted the money? Is it about the older brother who stayed home and, and, and took care of the family business, obeyed all the rules? And there's this debate that goes on. And really, when you stop and think about it, I think the parable comes down to, above all, it's about the love of our God. Yeah. Seen in how the father in that parable responds when he sees his prodigal coming home. Yeah. And that is such a beautiful picture of God being displayed here through the prophet Isaiah. That is God's heart. Yes, there's going to be judgment. Yes, there will be consequences, but God's heart is if that's what it takes to turn people back to me, then so be it. And he, as a loving father, arms wide open, says, come, come unto me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest, and I will give you peace, and I will give you hope. And it's all found in Christ. I said last night, you know who wasn't happy about the prodigal coming home? Anybody? The fatty calf. That's who wasn't happy about it. Everybody else, it's all good because that's God's heart. Pain's intention, church, is to produce prayer. You agree with that? Pain's intention is to produce prayer within us. It's when we're hurting that we most often find ourselves crying out, praying to God. Our tendency, as you know, and we've talked about it here before, is to do everything we can to avoid, to avoid hardship and pain, right? We do everything we can to sidestep and not have anything to do with it which is kind of unfortunate. You want to know why? Because in reality, our Father often allows us to go through painful situations because it's in those times that we go to Him. It's in those times that we cry out to Him. Prayerlessness is often a sign of painlessness. 
We don't like pain. And, you know, let me be the first to admit, I, I, don't, I don't want it for myself. I don't want it for you. However, in reality, because I know my God knows best, I know that he loves me and that he is for me. If that is what has to happen in my life and maybe even in yours, if that's what it takes to bring you back to a place where you're calling on him, seeking him, looking to him, then to God be the glory. Amen? Amen. Prayerlessness, often the result of painlessness. If we never have pain, we will be hampered in our ability to trust, to pray, and to obey. It is humility, I think, that jumps out at us in verse 18. We find there the people of God in childbirth is the analogy being used, but nothing is being born. Let me just remind you what God, the commission God gave the Israelites at Mount Sinai. I, I am making you my very special people so that you would make me known in the world. They're admitting here that they have failed miserably at doing that. That's what they're saying. It's important that we understand this because when you go through times of difficulty, it will either enlarge you spiritually and birth something from you, or you'll just produce nothing, nothing to offer whatsoever to anybody, to God's kingdom, to his church. What makes the difference then? Well, if you're going to be bitter about your pain, it's going to turn you into a windbag and cause you to be resentful. You'll just go around blowing hot air all over the place, complaining and griping, complaining and griping. It's all that's going to come out of your mouth. It's all that people will see from your life. If, on the other hand, you embrace it and use it as an opportunity for growth and prayer and drawing closer to God, you'll be enlarged and something special will be birthed as a result, not only as a blessing to you, but as a blessing to His church, as a blessing to others. It all depends on how you view it. If you will let Him, God will give you understanding about it and so that you can choose to embrace it and become better for it. Now let's go back to verse 3, okay, like I promised we would do. Verse 3 is a well-known verse, really. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Stating the obvious, if you don't have peace in Christ, all of this talk about judgment and wrath and devastation will only breed within you fear and anxiety. The opposite of peace. <laughs> it is finished, Jesus declared, and we find those words in the Gospels, John 19, 30 being one of those, and therefore we can have peace, not because of our great devotion or our long hours of prayer, but solely because Jesus Christ ordained peace for us on the cross of Calvary. Yes. 
folks, I want you to know a life of devotion, and that is important, and a life of prayer, yes, to be longed for, are what follow a life that is filled with the peace of Christ. You don't enter into those things hoping to get peace. You do those things because you have peace in Christ. Understanding what's been accomplished for you, won for you, bought for you on the cross. God gives his people perfect peace. Verse 3 is letting us know as believers we actually get a double peace. You ever heard of the term double dip? <laughs> we all have, right? Well, here we are being told we get a double peace, not just peace, a double peace. Not only peace with God because Jesus died for our sins, but also the peace of God as our hearts and minds stay connected and focused and fixed on Him. As you well know, we live in a world that is full of frustration, tension, and problems, right? And each of us has an eternal craving for peace. It's built in. We do, don't we? We have an internal craving for peace and harmony. Yet the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 11, that man will say, peace, peace. Longing for peace, but there is no peace. And even though mankind desires it, even though we crave it, we look around and see very little of it. Would you agree? There's coming a time, however, when that will not be the case. Hallelujah. When Jesus Christ returns to this planet, establishes his throne in the new Jerusalem, a perfect government, there will be peace, everlasting peace, security, and harmony. And in that day, there will be no more war. In that day, there will be no more need for weapons. In that day, there will be capital letters, peace, bright lights shining. Why? Because the Prince of Peace will rule the world. The kingdom of God has two aspects, folks. There is the external physical kingdom, the one that Christ will rule from Jerusalem, that peace. But there is also the spiritual internal kingdom that can exist in your life presently. How? Paul gives us the answer, which we recently looked at when we just got through going through Philippians, okay? It's Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, we experience the peace of God by worrying about nothing, <laughs> praying about everything, and being thankful for all things. Worry has no place in the life of a believer. Nobody said amen, except for maybe a couple right over here. 
I'm going to say it again. And, and we're all guilty of it, self-included. Worry has no place in the life of a believer. Praying. Now that's the key. Praying brings peace because it's how we fix our minds and our hearts on God. We often hear the phrase, prayer changes things. Have you heard that? Not quite true. It's faith that changes things. It is prayer that changes us. Amen. In the 1970s, 1980s, how many of you remember a country group called the Gatlin Brothers? Anybody? Yeah. They, they, they were pretty um, successful. They took home a good chunk of the gold that they sang about in their hit song, All the Gold in California. <laughs> this was one of many hit songs that they sang back then. But as you know, often success and fame and, and, and money and the whole celebrity life kind of lifestyle can take a toll on people. It ends up actually kind of becoming a formidable foe against them. It's out to like steal, kill, and destroy. And it has done that. And we've, how many stories have we heard of how the mighty have fallen? Unfortunately for the Gatlins, it was no different. They hit hard times and they weren't able at some point to manage the success. In time, however, you know, Larry, Steve, and Rudy, the three Gatlins, hit bottom in one way or another. Larry, for example, hit bottom and found himself in a hotel room in Dallas, crawling around looking for specks of cocaine. Steve was diagnosed with clinical depression. And Rudy had an extramarital affair with Tammy Wynette, who was no longer standing for her man, George Jones. They left the road broken, broken, broken. Before checking into a treatment center, however, Larry Gatlin says he cried out to God. He had hit bottom. He cried out to God. He said, God, if you do not help me, I am going to die. God likes hearing those kinds of prayers because he loves us and he is for us. Amen. Today, Larry Gatlin travels the nation, a spokesman for his faith in Jesus Christ. At some point during his career, I'm not sure exactly when and where, he wrote a song that I uh, was pretty special to me because back in the day when we were serving as youth pastors in a church in Rifle, we were part of this little musical group and we traveled around Colorado and sang in church and stuff. And, and this song that I'm going to share with you was one of the songs we used to sing. As I was, came across this story about the Gatlins, my mind immediately went back 100 years ago <laughs> to, that, to that song and I looked it up and wanted to just get the words. The words that I want you to listen to very carefully could very well be words that could refer to Larry's testimony song about his being at the bottom and looking up and crying out to God, 
and finding hope and finding peace. There's a light at the end of darkness and it shines for all the world to see. It will shine on your heart if you will let it. I was blind when it finally shined on me. There is hope in that light for the hopeless and a soothing balm for pain and misery. It's so near, though sometimes our faith seems so fleeting. I was blind when it finally shined on me. There's a light at the end of the darkness, so look up when you are down and try to believe. Sometimes we have to be knocked down to make us look up. <laughs> I was looking up through the bottom when it finally shined on me. Untold numbers of people out there today, maybe even some who are sitting here today, that would be your story. It's Israel's story. It's Judah's story. Because there will be a day when God once again turns his eyes on them and in his loving grace and mercy calls them to himself. Is God calling you these days into a deeper relationship? A closer walk with him? Increasing your devotion life, increasing your prayer life? Have you been taking all this for granted? I mentioned last week that this salvation of ours is not cheap. It cost God a lot, didn't it? And all he asks of us is that we lay down our lives for him. And so in the atmosphere of worship and praise, of honoring God and submitting to his will, you will find that many things you previously demanded and desired began and begin to fade away. But what you have when you get up off of your knees from a time of crying out and praying and seeking God is peace. A peace that passes all understanding because your mind and your heart are now fixed on God rather than on yourself and your desires. Because you're at peace with God, you can experience the peace that comes from Him as you set your heart upon Him moment by moment, day by day. God cares for His people, church. He cares for you. How about we up the ante in our caring about Him? and caring about others. Amen. Father, we come before you this morning and we want to say thank you again for your grace and your mercy, your loving kindness, and your patience toward us. And God, I, I just want to pray that for everyone in this room, that you would bring upon our hearts a sense of urgency. That you would bring upon our hearts an awareness along with an awakening 
that time is short and we just can't keep doing church and this thing that we call Christianity the way we've been doing it, half-hearted, often complacent, apathetic, hearts cold towards you, somewhat spiritually ignorant and not understanding. But God, may you awaken us and, and, and do a work within our hearts, God, that we would see that now is the time. We can't keep putting it off. Now is the time to fully give ourselves to you. That our lives would be counted for you. That we would stand firm on your promises. Stand firm on your word. And be counted as one who belongs to Jesus Christ. No longer fearful of what others might say. No longer afraid of being shunned or rejected, but just standing for you. Because when we stand before you in that day, we want to hear from your words, Lord. From your mouth, enter good and faithful, devoted, committed, surrendered servant of mine. That's what needs to matter. And so, God, may our lives be filled with your hope and your peace because of what we have in you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up, lift up my heart.